Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Father, thank you for your grace, for your goodness. Thank you that your people can gather, sing songs about Jesus and what he has done, and then open your word. And even as we touch down on this small passage that speaks to how we are to work and how we are to be servants and masters, I pray, Lord, that you would tune our hearts into that today is not about merely vocation or how we're to act in the workplace, but ultimately, like everything else in the world, it is about Jesus and his glory and, and our joy in that. Lord, I'm acutely aware, as I am every Sunday, that there are people in this room who are already followers of Jesus that need to be stirred and need to be encouraged and need to be exhorted so that they would see all of life through the lens of the gospel. Lord, would you do that for my friends in here who are already followers of Jesus? Would you stir our affections for you and your sovereign grace? And Lord, I'm also aware that there are people in this room who are not yet believers in Jesus. They may think they already are. They may think they're following you, but may, maybe they never really have truly trusted. Maybe they've trusted in morality or church attendance or in a relatively good life. Or maybe they know they're not Christians and they're just here investigating the faith. Lord, would you do what only you can do? Would you give the gifts of repentance and faith? And would you cause them to pass from death to life so that they could see Jesus and believe in him and be a child of God? Lord, that's ultimately all that matters this morning. So would you do those things for my friends this morning and would you help me? Lord, I am frail, I am complicated, and I am a a hypocrite. And I need your help today. So help us now as we think through these things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let me read Ephesians 5. I'm sorry, Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9. It says, bondservants, maybe in the version that you're reading from or in another, it's been several printings of the ESV, it will say, slaves, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will. As to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. All right, we're going to do three things. You can just kind of follow along with me. I'm going to do three things today. Briefly, I'm just going to kind of explain what's going on in this text, and then we're going to move quickly into looking at just three principles that I think flow out of this text, and then we're going to look at some application for our own lives and some things that I think the gospel, some attitudes 
that I think the gospel calls us to as a people in relationship as workers or bosses or just people living in culture. First thing that I think we, we need to handle is this, this notion of, of slavery and how the Bible, at least in some instances here, like in Ephesians chapter 6 and in other areas, seems to not uh, speak against slavery. So doesn't, doesn't that just sort of offend our sort of modern sensibilities? Well, why doesn't Paul, why does Paul even sort of give credence to this institution of slavery rather than condemning it? Well, there's a couple things that we need to do briefly. We could spend a lot of time on this, but I don't think it's the thrust of the text. And so let me just kind of handle this briefly. Um, a couple things. Number one, s- slavery in New Testament times does not sort of equate with slavery like we would think of it in our context, like the slave trade in America a few centuries ago. What's happening in slavery, there are thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of slaves in the Roman Empire, and it wasn't necessarily ethnic or racial slavery, although sometimes it was, but it was more often a sort of economic slavery where there would even be people that were more educated or in a higher class that might sell themselves into slavery in some context as a sort of means to uh, for work to get money so that they could then eventually buy themselves out of slavery. But there's three things I want us to think about as to why it seems like the Bible does not condemn slavery in this context and how that might trouble us as Americans today. The first thing is, is that in the context of the Roman Empire that Paul is writing in, it really wouldn't have even been practical for, for there to be uh, no slavery. It was more like part of their economic system. And so there were some estimates that there were like 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire at the time. And so for there to be a sort of emancipation of all the people that were in some sort of category of slavery working for a master, for that to be just eradicated, it it would have turned the culture upside down financially. Number two, uh, unlike American slavery, Freedom was a possibility for slaves. They could eventually buy their way, not in every situation, but very often they could buy their way out of slavery. And oftentimes it was a sort of economic status where they went to work, they voluntarily gave themselves over to it, and then they could eventually get themselves out of it. But having said that, listen, um, we we realize that any time a human being is not being treated with dignity by another human being, that is, a, that is a terrible thing and completely against God's way and God's law. And so we need to realize that. But more importantly than either one of these two points, that it would have turned the culture up, it was just the economic system was kind of built on this work relationship, and two, that the slaves most often in the Roman Empire could sometimes buy their way out of freedom, although certainly there were differences and exceptions over the centuries. But thirdly, I think we need to understand when we read something like this is that the point of the scriptures is not to be a sort of political manifesto. The Bible seems very unconcerned with that, actually. Sometimes even frustratingly to us, unconcerned with whether or not we should vote for Democrats or Republicans or whether or not we should be pro this or pro that. Or, or the Bible is aimed at the heart of people, aimed at the heart of sinners. And in this context, in Ephesians, Paul is speaking to people who are Christians who find themselves in a particular situation in life. 
And he is speaking to them where they are. It's not a political manifesto. Now, can we step back from that and say that God despises the mistreatment of any individuals? Of course. Can we step back from that and say that the human institution of slavery is despicable? Of course. In fact, Paul does write about slavery. It's just sort of an offhanded remark in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8, 9, and 10. And he speaks about, in fact, let me read it. 1 Timothy 1, chapter 8. He says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, and then enslavers. So in other words, people who enslave others, liars, perjurers, or whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So what I'm, I'm trying to do there is to get us past the hurdle that some of us may get caught up and say, whoa, whoa, whoa why, why doesn't Paul sort of, why doesn't when the issue of slavery comes up, in Ephesians 6, why isn't he speaking against that institution as an ungodly stain on humanity? Which it is. But you have to understand that that's not what Paul is doing in Ephesians 6. He's speaking to people in context. But let's step back and take this opportunity, although this is not what Ephesians is about, and say that I think one of the great ills, of th- thankfully, slavery is no longer in practice in the United States, but certainly a racial prejudice and animosity and tension exists certainly to this day, especially, I think, here in this region of the country. And again, although this is not part of the text that we're looking at today, just as, a, I think, a, a rabbit trail that I think is good for us as a congregation, one of the marks of a church that has been captivated by the gospel is a love for people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And my dream is that Crosspoint someday would look more like a random slice of Columbus. Now, I think that there's certain ways you can do that. You can, you can overcompensate and try and be culturally appealing to some culture. I think, that, I think that's a mistake. Or you can just love Jesus so much in however God made you that, that it just becomes something that God in his sovereignty draws people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, even in the city that you're in. And my hope and prayer and dream is that Crosspoint would be that type of place, whether white people or black people or yellow people or brown people or purple people or yellow people or tall people or short people or military people or civilian people or Alabama people or Auburn people or Georgia people, or people who actually think the Pac-12 plays football, or <laughs> Army fans, or Navy fans, Miss Marty, or people, people from all over. Do you realize, do you realize, friends, listen, do you realize that when we, when we love Jesus in a way, and that starts to become just a natural mark of who we are, we become a sort of outpost of heaven. We become a, a picture of what is to come. We become a sort of earthly deposit of a heavenly reality. And I, I long for that, and I think that's a mark of a, 
of a church that is in love with Jesus and his work in the world. Well, enough of that. Well, let's keep going. So he says there, so just to help us with that issue of slavery, he says that people that are in this working relationship with a master should, should have this type of respect with him. Notice there in verse 5, he says, fear and trembling with a sincere heart. So you're, you're respecting this person as a model of authority regardless of whether or not they are good or bad or righteous or unrighteous. You're there working not by way of eye service, not as a people pleaser, not for your own selfish means, but, but because you are bound ultimately not by this person, but because there's a deeper sort of tie that you have. You're, you're not shackled to that person ultimately and finally, who is your earthly master. But as he says there in verse 6, you, you are a slave, a bondservant of Christ. And that we have this beautiful privilege to do the will of God from the heart, rendering our service in whatever context it is as to the Lord and not to man. Just there, verse 7. Look at how that redeems just all work. He says that we should render service with a good will because we're doing it for God. And ultimately not for man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a slave, a bondservant, or is free. And then he ends in verse 9 saying, Masters, you should do the same. Stop your threatening. Knowing that he is both, who, both their master, who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And that there is no partiality with him. Well, three principles that I think we can glean from this text and then a few points of application and we'll respond and worship together. The first principle is that all work is valuable and important. All work. He's speaking here to slaves, to bond servants who are very likely doing very menial work, very unglamorous work. And so I, I think we can glean from this that all work is valuable. We all are created in the image of God, and God is a working God. God is always doing something. He's working. He's working things out for His glory and the good of His people. God is constantly working. And because we're people made in His image, we, we should be constantly working too. And we should realize that all work is valuable and important. I think, well, one of the attitudes that we have to fight in, in our culture is that we tend to compartmentalize work as either spiritual or secular. And so we tend to, I think as many of you, if you grew up in a, maybe a church culture, you, you know, there's maybe the young guy in youth group who could play the guitar, who, you know, kind of got called into ministry, and then all the examples from the preaching is kind of, you know, called as some sort of ministry work. But really the Bible doesn't sort of think in that way, that, that God redeems all of life and all work is valuable, whether it is preaching, whether it is praying, whether it is serving the poor in some ministry context, or, or whether it is just some job in a cuticle, or delivering mail, or working in the home, or being a salesman, or working in a public school. All work is valuable and important. One of my favorite quotes is from Abraham Kuyper, who was a Dutch prime minister around the turn of the century, last century, around 1900, and he said something to the effect of, that there is not one square inch over this entire universe that the Lord Jesus does not rightly cry and claim over it, mine. There's not one cubicle. There's not one street corner. 
There is not one dusty office in this entire world that Jesus is not supreme over and does not desire for his glory to be shown even in that place. All work is valuable and important. Secondly, second principle that I think we can glean from this is that no one is anywhere by chance. Okay? No one is anywhere by chance. Now, this verse may not speak directly to that, but when we look, as we think about our work, and as we even wrestle with maybe a lack of satisfaction in the particular phase of life that God has us in, I think it would be very helpful for us as we think about being a good employee or a good boss or a good person at work in the week to think about and understand that God is sovereign over every step we take. Listen to this in Acts chapter 17. This is Paul here as he's at Mars Hill and speaking there in to these Greeks. And he says in Acts chapter 17, verse 26 and 28, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. And so so there, Paul says that he has determined allotted periods and the boundaries of where we would dwell by his providence so that we should seek God. So that little cubicle that you're so frustrated with, that job that just seems so below you, God has You realize what this verse is saying? That he may very well have put you there to arrange your situation so that you would grope for him, that you would seek him, or maybe that through you, somebody else would come to know Jesus. A few more on the providence of God that will help us understand that no one is anywhere or in any job by chance. Proverbs 16.33, one of my favorite Proverbs. It would be helpful to just read Proverbs 16 this afternoon, the whole Uh, the whole proverb, but in particular, the last verse in that proverb, it says the lot, in other words, like dice, it's like, you know, just throwing a lot or or shaking, like rolling dice, the lot is cast into the lap, something that seems very random, like the the, the rolling of dice or the, the casting of lots, but every decision is from the Lord, so even as dice are shook and rolled and it come up snake eyes or whatever they are, even that isn't random, even God is over that. Psalm 139, verse 16. King David writes this. He says, just sort of nailing home this idea of the utter, beautiful providence of God. Psalm 139, verse 16. He says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. I know some of us, because we're Americans and because we are rugged individualists, we, 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 we wrestle with verses like that because we have been taught in our culture that we are the captains of our own destiny and I can do whatever I want because I am me, right? But, but the Bible comes and shoots an arrow across our bow and it says, no, 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 home slice. God is actually in control of everything for his glory and your good. And so that means that when I was a little kid growing up on the border in California in El Centro, 
on the corner of Winsley and Fifth Avenue, stealing metal air caps from cars so that I could sell them, that was my first job, sell them at the bike rack. That God knew that I was going to be in the army at Fort Benning, Georgia, and see a girl who happened to be home from school for just three weeks, fall in love with her and marry her, serve in the army for a little while, and come back to this place because he knew that I was going to live here and give myself away for the gospel here. Right? God, God knew that every day was ordained before one of them came to be. And, and I take great comfort in that to know that God has a purpose and a plan for every, even every bad decision I've made. God somehow is working it out to display His beauty through even my life. No one is anywhere by chance. No one. You're not in that job that you hate by chance. If you have a great job and you're making just lots of money and you're doing really well, he didn't give that to you so that it could dead end on you. No one is anywhere by luck but by the good providence of God. Listen to this old Centuries-old catechism. It's called the Heidelberg Catechism, written by some German cats back in the Protestant Reformation. I love it just because the word Heidelberg, city in Germany, is really cool. I just like to say it, Heidelberg, Heidelberg, <laughs> Heidelberg. Um, it's probably the, uh, in fact, I read something recently that this is the most read piece of Christian literature other than the Bible in the past 500 years. This, along with the Westminster uh, Confession of Faith and Catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, question number 27. I like the old language. It says, what dost thou mean by the providence of God? The answer, the almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he upholds and governs earth, heaven, earth and all creatures, so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, Fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, poverty, yea, and all things come, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Friends, this life is not about these 80 or 90 years. And sometimes it's hard to think about the providence of God because we are addicted to ease and comfort and everything going our way. But when we realize God does everything to magnify his name and for the eternal, not necessarily the temporal, but the eternal joy of his people, we are released from our death grip on circumstantial temporary joy. And we can lean forward into the sovereignty of God in all things. You are not where you are. You are not stationed at Fort Benning. You are not in that job that you do not like by chance. Does this mean that you have to stay there forever? No. Maybe by even the way you work to get out of this job or to advance or to do something else will display the glory of God in you. But it does mean that you are not there by chance. God has not forgotten you in that place. 
Third principle is that first is all work is valuable and important. Two, no work, no one is anywhere by chance. And thirdly, all of life is meant to display the gospel. All of life, whether you are a slave or whether you are a master, whether you are a menial worker or whether you are the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, whether you are a housewife or a platoon sergeant, whether you are a, 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 a captain going through the career horse course or whether, whether you are a school teacher or a sales rep or a pastor or a student, whatever you are, your life is meant to display the gospel. This is what Paul writes to the Colossians in chapter 3, verse 23. Whatever you do, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. He says a very similar thing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And maybe my, first, my, fa- most, uh, my most favorite most beloved verse in the whole Bible, Romans eleven thirty six, because I think it just encapsulates what everything exists for. Romans eleven thirty six for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. All work is valuable and important. No one is anywhere by chance. And all of life is meant to display the gospel. Well, let's end with just a few things that I think we can, some attitudes that we can apply to our life. The first is that I think this text and the gospel calls us to reject apathy. To reject apathy. There's a sort of lowest common denominator of the majority that sometimes just, Reynolds calls this a lot, I love this phrase, I don't know, he just says it all the time. No, that's stinking thinking, you know, and just get negative kind of, you know, just, ah, I'm just griping and complaining and moaning and groaning, right? There's this sort of lowest common denominator of the majority that just seems to drag us down. And, and the gospel, because God has redeemed our lives, no matter what state we find them in, that we can reject negativity, we can reject apathy as, as we remember the value that God gives us wherever we find ourselves. Look, I know, man, I can remember being in the army and you're just some little low-ranking guy. You're in the motor pool and you're just wondering why the colonel has made that decision and you just, you just, yeah, get around the water cooler at work, just, just, Fussing and moaning, just yeah, 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 yeah. And before you know it, Christians can even get caught up in that, and and they're just they're just like a little band of just sour grapes, just just moving around from place to place, just spreading a passion for discontent. I mean. <laughs> How does that commend the gospel? And I think we're so, I think one of the, the, the sort of the spirits of our age is the spirit of apathy and, and, and just sarcasm. Our, our sitcoms, our TV shows are just built on just this sarcastic discontent with authority and work. I mean, come on, isn't that like the whole premise of Seinfeld? I mean, just negativity. It's just the whole premise of, of much of what just get pumped into this. Eh, the man's keeping me down. Eh, 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 eh. 
Just get by with the least amount of work so you can enjoy the weekend. And what we do is we just we, we shrink down the universe into just means by which we can have leisure. And the, the gospel, the redemption that is in Jesus, the sovereignty of God over every area of life, the fact that all of our life, whatever it is, is called to reflect the gospel, allows us to reject the negativity of apathy and to say, no, 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 uh, this may not be the ultimate for me, but I am here for a reason, and I am going to renew my heart and mind towards this situation. Secondly, another attitude that we can take because of the gospel and because of this truth, we can reject self-absorbed pursuit of leisure. Reject self-absorbed pursuit of leisure. I think many Americans think that if you know, we just kind of go into work with this attitude, I've worked hard and I deserve this. And we have shrunk down our work into merely an accumulation of wealth so that we can retire early and so that we can buy trinkets and toys to dead end on ourselves. And the gospel calls us to reject that. Self-absorbed pursuit of leisure. Very similarly, that brings us to the next one, is that the gospel in our work calls us to reject selfish gain, to step over people for the accumulation of our own wealth. This is what Paul writes to a young pastor, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 6, starting in verse 17. He says, As for the rich in this present age, and by the way, that's the vast majority of the people in this room. Comparatively speaking, compared to, I know some of you are like rearing up, I ain't rich. I <laughs> mean, you're like, well, you're like rearing up right now. Let me tell you, you don't know. All right. <laughs> Easy killing. I got you. But do you realize that if you have a checking account and a refrigerator, you're like in the top 6% of wealth in the population of the world? All right, so, no, I, I realize there's probably some people that are, like, over-the-top wealthy. Like, maybe there's some people in this room that have lots and lots of money. And maybe, maybe you're, not, you're on the other end of the American spectrum of that. But, but, I, but the point is, is that I think we, can, we need not read this verse and say, oh, yeah, that, that guy. This is talking about me and you. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So Paul, Paul here is saying, reject that, man. He's not saying don't work hard and don't achieve and don't be a good example of, 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 of a duty concept in your context. And he's not even bashing the accumulation of wealth here. But what he's saying, modern day American, is don't set your hopes on that. And so if you were born into a wealthy family and that propelled you to a good education and you have a great job and your bank account is full, don't let it 
dead end on yourself. If you were born rich, God made you rich for the display of his glory, not for you to run off, to be self-absorbed, to waste your life on yourself. And if God made you relatively poor for American context, he didn't make you poor so that you could be negative and angry for the rest of your life and blow your income on lottery tickets and silliness. He didn't make you for that. He made you in your context to display his all-sufficiency. And that brings me to my last and final points, and then we're done. The gospel empowers us to reject finding satisfaction and identity in anything but Jesus. You're not the title of your job. You're not your salary. You're not your education level. If you are a believer in Jesus, you are a child of God, redeemed and made alive by His grace alone, and put in a place so that in your context, you might make much of Jesus in your time and place. If you're not a believer in Jesus, there is nothing between you and God's grace but your own unbelief and stubbornness. And God in his kindness right now may very well be tugging on your heart and showing you that you're not a Christian. What do you need to do? Do you need to buckle down and work harder? Do you need to commit to coming back to church next Sunday and then doing that a bunch Do you need to pray some specific prayer or join this church or commit not to doing that and doing this? No, friends. You need to look away from yourself and you need to look to Jesus right now. Believe in him. Believe in Jesus right now. Turn away from trusting in yourself. Turn away from some sin that you covet because you think that it's better. And trust in Jesus, even right now, and and realize that He alone, He alone has done the work for your right standing with your Creator. Believe in Him right now. Trust in Jesus right now, even as I'm speaking. Say, Jesus, I believe in you. I trust in you. Forgive me. I've trusted in other things. Redeem my life for your glory and my joy. Let's pray together. Father, as we come now to um, respond to you and respond to your word, Lord, I pray that you would help us. I pray that as a church and as a people, you would give us a, a robust view of the value of all work. I pray that Crosspoint would be a place where 
people on the very lowest end of the economic spectrum and people on the very highest end of it could see each other through the lens of the gospel, could find satisfaction in your glory, not in the fading temporary riches of this world. Lord, I pray that we would be a people that find our satisfaction in you. I pray that we would be a people that are radically committed to the glory of your name amongst all the nations, amongst all people types, amongst black people and white people and brown people and yellow people. I pray that we would be a people that are, that are so longing for eternity with you that Lord, we, we don't have a death grip on our 401k or our circumstances. And pray that you would free us up to trust your good and gracious providence. And Lord, if there's anyone in this room, and I suspect very likely that there are, if there's anyone who is not trusted in you, I pray that even now, Lord, they would look away from themselves they would look to Jesus and what he has done on the cross and his death and his burial and his resurrection as the substitute and sacrifice for our sins and in his resurrection, the victory over our sin and death. I pray that they would believe in him and trust in him alone for their right standing with you. And I pray that you would do these things for your glory and for our joy and for the sake of the lost. In Jesus' name, amen.